go ahead and take your copy of God's word and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We are going to take a little bit of a break from our study in the Gospel of John to celebrate and contemplate the Passion Week. We are celebrating Palm Sunday today, and we will be celebrating Good Friday and then Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day in a week. This is just the best week for Christians. This is everything for believers. And so I think it would be good for us to contemplate this week that we call the Passion Week. One of the reasons why we should contemplate it is because 40% of the Gospels contemplate the Passion Week. So you have a three and a half year period of Jesus's public earthly ministry. And of all the Gospels account of the three and a half years that Jesus ministered on the earth publicly, 40% of the Gospels deals with one week of that three and a half year period. Just one week. And praise the Lord, it's an eight-day week, right? We, we know that it's not a seven-day week. It doesn't end on Saturday. It starts on Sunday, triumphal entry, and it ends on Sunday. It is an eight-day week. Praise the Lord. Passion Week, as you know, gets its name from Acts chapter 1, verse 3. In the New American Standard, it says, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. In the King James Version, it says, to whom he showed himself alive after his passion, after his suffering, by many infallible proofs. So the Passion Week is the week of our Lord's suffering. We've looked at many of these moments of the Passion Week. If you go to the Friday before the Passion Week begins, you have Jesus coming into Bethany. And as he rides into Bethany, as he probably walks into Bethany and spends the night in Bethany with his friend Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, um, there's a party. There's a party. Um, John chapter 12 tells us there's a party that's celebrating the resurrection of Lazarus. There's a party that's celebrating Simon the leper being healed and being a leper no more. It's at Simon the leper's house. But more than anything, this party is to celebrate and to thank the Savior. And Mary, uh, Lazarus' sister, does that by anointing Jesus' feet with the costly perfume. Saturday is the Sabbath. Friday sundown to Saturday sundown is the Sabbath. So they stay in Bethany. And then Sunday is Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. Jesus rides in on the colt of a donkey to the shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a reception because the Jewish people as a whole believe that Jesus was their Messiah. Politically speaking, he was going to come, destroy Rome, take over during the Passover celebration. Uh, the culture and, and the land would have been excite, excited with the possibility of a rebellion happening, uh, an insurrection happening to throw uh, Rome out of Israel for good. Jesus rides in, talks with the Pharisees a little bit, talks with his own disciples a little bit, goes into the temple on Sunday, looks around, and because it's late, he leaves goes back to Bethany. Monday, he walks in, curses a fig tree, cleanses the temple, and takes over. And, and he owns the temple. Goes back out Monday night, spends the night in Bethany. Tuesday, he comes in. Uh, the disciples ask about the, the fig tree that has been cursed. He shares the lesson on the fig tree. And then he also goes back to the temple and answers a series of six questions that the Pharisees and the Sadducees have tried to come up with to try and test and challenge Jesus. And the whole point is they're trying to get the crowds on their side. Because they want him dead. They want Jesus dead, but they fear the crowds. They don't know how to get the crowds on their side. They figure we can make him look like a fool. And if we do that, the crowds will bow to our wishes. 
That does not happen on Monday and Tuesday of the Passion Week. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders say, then it needs to be some other way to kill him apart from the crowd's knowledge. We need to get him alone. When's the next time Jesus is going to be alone? They know it. It's the the Passover celebration. You could only celebrate 10 people max to a lamb. So they knew this was going to be an intimate celebration around the Passover. So let's get him Thursday night when the Passover is being held. But where is he going to be taking the Passover? The only way they can know is if one of his disciples comes. And that's what happens on Wednesday of the Passion Week. We call it a silent day in the Bible because there is no ink spilled because there are two secret meetings that are happening on Wednesday that nobody knew about. Judas is going to the religious leader saying, I want him dead too. I'm willing to betray him and I'll tell you where the Passover is being held once I find out. And Jesus is planning where the Passover is going to be held. He's secretively planning that so that there's no possibility of anybody knowing where that upper room is going to be such that they can enjoy the Passover celebration on their own instead of walking up to the upper room and being surprised by guards to take him away. Thursday, they take the Passover together. Judas leaves during the Passover celebration to go get the guards, brings them back to the upper room. Jesus has already left with his disciples. They've gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas finally shows up, betrays Jesus with a kiss, and they arrest Jesus and take him away to six different trials. Now, we've looked as a church at the Friday before triumphal entry. We've looked at the triumphal entry. We've looked at Monday and Tuesday of the Passion Week, and we've looked at Thursday night of the Passion Week. So I figured we can look together at Friday morning of the Passion Week, and this will really set the stage for what we're going to do on Good Friday. And as I was contemplating, looking at Friday morning of the Passion Week, my attention was brought to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And you say, well, that has no ink spilled on the Passion Week. You'd be right, but there's a a little phrase nestled in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that I want to unpack this morning. I want to ask questions about it and unpack it together this morning. So for the sake of time, originally I wanted to read this whole chapter, but let's just drop down to verse 11. Drop down to verse 11 in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul writes to Timothy, a pastor in Ephesus, flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's just ask God's blessing on our time as we dive in. Father, please open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. May we feel as if we are there in the praetorium watching these scenes unfold. May we smell the sweat. May we see the blood dripping from our Savior's forehead. May we feel the tension in the room and may we understand the love that Jesus had 
even for a supposed enemy, Pontius Pilate. And God, I pray that as we walk through the good confession that Jesus made before Pontius Pilate, that we would do exactly what Paul is telling Timothy to do. Press ourselves into the mold that Jesus has given to us. He has given to us a beautiful example that we need to follow. So open our eyes to see that example clearly, and may we follow it by the power of your Spirit. We pray in your name. Amen. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13, Paul tells Timothy that in the presence of God, charge him in the presence of God, he gives life to all things, and in the presence of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Now, I instantly have two questions when I read that. My first question overall is, what is that? But my two questions are, wasn't Jesus quiet before his accusers? I, I don't remember him speaking. I remember the synoptics being very clear that he kept his mouth shut. Mark chapter 15, verses 3 through 5. The chief priest began to accuse him harshly, and Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. So question number one is, wasn't Jesus silent before his accusers? Question number two is, what is Jesus confessing to? He's innocent. What is he confessing about? What is he saying that he has done? We know biblically he was obviously innocent, not only because of his person and his holiness as being God, but Pilate knew that five times. You can count them up in the gospel records. Five times Pilate proclaimed explicitly the innocence of Jesus. Luke chapter 23, verse 4, he says, I find no fault in this man. Luke chapter 23, 14 through 15, I have found no guilt in this man. Luke chapter 23, verse 22, after the Barabbas affair, that was another attempt to try and get Jesus to go free. Uh, the crowd does not buy into that attempt, and they say, we want him dead. And Pilate says, why? What evil has this man done? I find no guilt in him, therefore I will punish him and release him. John chapter 19, verse 4, I am bringing Jesus out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And this was after Pilate had him scourged. There's no guilt in this man. I want to satisfy your anger against him. I'll beat him up really badly, but there's no guilt. He's innocent. And then finally, John chapter 19, verses 5 through 6, when the crowd says, that's not enough. We want him dead. We want him crucified. Pilate says, we'll take him and crucify him yourselves because I find no guilt in this man. Five times, explicitly, he is innocent. So, what did Jesus say before Pilate? And what did he confess to, knowing that Pilate knew he was innocent? What's happening? This is where John is going to be incredibly helpful, because John gives us a, a picture that the synoptics don't give. The synoptics all say he was quiet before his accusers, he didn't open his mouth. But John gives us a glimpse, two glimpses actually, into the trial that Jesus went through with Pilate and how Pilate answered or how Jesus answered Pilate. So this morning I want to ask this question. How did Jesus handle himself before Pilate? I believe we can learn many things from the way that he did, he did that. Just to set the stage and give context, on Friday morning when Jesus was betrayed by Judas and taken by the religious leaders, there were three trials that were, we would call Jewish trials that were held to convict Jesus as a criminal. 
The first was before a man named Annas. Annas was the ex-high priest. He was the father-in-law to Caiaphas. And Annas was just a placeholder. He was just trying to buy time so that the Sanhedrin could come together to gather to make a formal sentence on Jesus. So he's asking him random questions. Jesus is not answering him. And he is, Jesus is being beat up by the guards and ridiculed. Once the Sanhedrin has started to convene, Caiaphas takes the second trial and asks Jesus, um, seeking a confession from Jesus, to convict him. Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? First he just says, are you the Christ? Because he wants Jesus to answer, yes, I am. And they can take that to Rome to say, this man claims to be a king, and we need to kill people who stir up sedition. Jesus does not answer, yes, I am the Christ alone. He pushes Caiaphas on that issue. He doesn't answer until Caiaphas says, fine, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Are you equal to God? And Jesus says, yes, I am. And that's when Caiaphas says, we need no further witness. This was the whole false witness thing. We need no further witness. He is guilty of blaspheming. That's not going to help before Rome, though. Um, But this angers Caiaphas so much that he tears his garments and he gives one final trial, one final Jewish trial before the Sanhedrin where he just says, is this man guilty? It's a fast trial. Sanhedrin says, yes, he is. And they convict him and they send him away. But the Jews were not permitted to kill or put to death their criminals. They weren't permitted to do that. Only Rome had the power to do that. Now, there's a, there's a question in our mind when we say that. The Jews were not allowed to execute people that they thought were criminals. There's a question that should come in your mind. And that is, well, what about Stephen? They killed Stephen, right? They stoned Stephen. Um, Rome would kind of turn away. And say, fine, if there's a nobody out there and you want to kill him, fine by us. But Jesus wasn't a nobody. Jesus was known to the entire land. So to kill Jesus by stoning him would be to incite a riot. They knew we had to take him to Rome. So they take him to Pilate. They take him before a Roman trial. And we're going to pick it up in John chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 18 is where we are going to spend the rest of our time. John 18 and John 19. They take him to Pilate. As you're turning there, Pilate, there are three Roman trials. There's one before Pilate where Pilate says, this man's innocent. He has done nothing wrong. And they say, yes, he has. The religious leaders say, you should kill him because he's incited a rebellion starting all the way in Galilee and coming all the way down to Jerusalem. And Pilate hears the word Galilee and he says, fine, if he's a Galilean, he's not in my jurisdiction. Send him to Herod. He's innocent. I don't want to deal with this man. Send him to Herod. So Herod Antipas, who is there, Herod Antipas is the one who had killed John the Baptist. Herod is excited to meet Jesus and to see him and asks him to do miracles and wants him to do things. And Jesus does nothing. He stands silent before Herod and Herod says, he's not guilty. He's an innocent man. He's just ludicrous. He's crazy. But I'm not killing him. Send him back to Pilate. Pilate receives Jesus yet again and says he's innocent and tries to fight to free Jesus. First, the Barabbas affair. Second, whipping and scourging Jesus But the crowd won't have it. John, the gospel writer, gives us the first and last of these Roman trials. Both are before Pilate. So let's look at the first one in John chapter 18, starting in verse 28. We'll just, we will go through these verses, set the scene, and we're going to ask, as we culminate at the end of our time together, we're going to ask, as we've seen Jesus on display and the way he handles himself before Pilate, what is Paul trying to tell Timothy that he should learn from the way that Jesus is handling himself? What is this good confession before Pilate? And how is it supposed to help you live your life to the glory of God? Okay, first trial. Verse 28, John chapter 18, verse 28. Then 
they, this is the religious leaders, led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. It was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. That is blatant hypocrisy. They want to murder a man, but they don't want to be unclean for the celebration of the Passover feast. Therefore, verse 29, Pilate went out to them, and he said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They are wanting this man to be killed. And he says, What accusation do you bring? Verse 30, they answered and they said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. That's their version of saying, Pilate, play the game. We, we already established this. We're going to bring you a, a criminal. We want you just to say yes. They didn't even want a trial before Pilate. They wanted Pilate to take Jesus and kill him. But Pilate says, I need to know who I'm killing. I need to do some form of interrogation here. So what's the charge? And they say, oh. Play the game, Pilate. Just kill him. Forget the charge. It doesn't matter. Just take him and kill him. Verse 31, Pilate says, take him yourselves then. Judge him according to your own law. But the Jews answered and said, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. And this is to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he had spoken, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Instead of just being taken out and stoned, which would have been a very private thing, Jesus knew I have to be crucified publicly. And we're going to talk about that on Friday of this week um, when we celebrate Good Friday. So, verse 33, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus. And he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? There's nobody else here. This is Pilate and Jesus. So this is the Holy Spirit telling us what's happening. This is sacred ground. All the other gospel writers, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't have this. But John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us sacred, solemn ground. And the question that's given to Jesus is, are you the king of the Jews? Now, this is, you have to know, this is a very dangerously ambiguous question. Because Jesus is the king. He is the Messiah. But Jesus knows that the charge being brought against him is not about being Messiah. It's about sedition. That's how the religious leaders are going to get Jesus killed. He claims to be a king. He claims to be Caesar. Jesus knows this. He knows that this is a purposefully vague question. And he's not going to let it slide. He's going to clarify it. And he does so graciously. Verse 34. Are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you about me. This is what Jesus is saying. Okay, you just asked me a very ambiguously vague question. What's the real question, Pilate? Are you asking if I'm the Messiah? Pilate would have known the concept of the Jewish Messiah. There were a lot of rebellions that had gone on before, a lot of revolts that had revolts that had been squashed by Rome. So Pilate knows there's this guy, this Jewish man, that's going to be the Messiah that's going to come and take over Rome. We kill Messiahs. Do you, do you claim to be Messiah? Or is this, you're just some crazy man that has no real claim to any, what are you doing? Who are you? And Jesus knows that. So he asks, are you asking if I'm truly the Messiah, the promised one from the Old Testament? Are you asking me that? Or are you asking me if I'm guilty of sedition, of causing an insurrection? Which one is it, Pilate? Are you asking from the bottom of your own heart? Or are you asking because of what the religious leaders have said? Pilate answers him. I am not a Jew. Am I your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me? What have you done? So Pilate's answer, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? 
Are you an insurrectionist? Are you the promised Messiah? What are you, who are you? What are you doing? Jesus says, which question are you asking here? And Pilate answers him. I'm asking about sedition. They claim you're a seditionist. They claim that you are trying to overthrow Rome. Is that what you're trying to do? Jesus has him clarify that. And Jesus says, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. Let me answer that claim. You're, you're asking me about sedition. Let me answer it. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So you're asking me if I'm a seditionist? You're asking if I'm revolting against Rome? Pilate, no, I'm not. It's clear that I'm not because if I was, I wouldn't let uh, myself be handed over. I am not trying to incite a rebellion here. Now, this verse... My kingdom is not of this world, is uh, used often by some of our uh, brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, who believe that Jesus here is establishing what we would call an all-millennial position, that there is no earthly physical kingdom yet to come. Jesus is inaugurating an eternal, heavenly, spiritual kingdom. It's not physical. It's not a millennial kingdom, uh, a reign and rule of Jesus on the earth like the Old Testament said it would be. This is where Jesus is redefining his kingdom and saying, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not of the earth. It's in heaven. This, this is one of the biggest millennial verses. And, you know, if you have a millennial friend who's walking around and drops their Bible, that's going to turn to this passage. This is, look at it in context. Is Jesus saying in context... Um, by the way, as I'm being tried, I'm about to be crucified. Can I just tell you everything that you knew about the Old Testament, all the prophecies made about land, all the prophecies made about a physical kingdom. Let's just change that right now. And then you can kill me like a one sentence restructuring of everything that the Old Testament prophesied. I, I, I just don't think so. I think clearly in context, he's saying I'm not a seditionist. I am a king, but I'm not the kind of king that that you have been told I am. I'm not the kind of king that's going to revolt against you. He's just responding with the truth. Now, Pilate picks up on this. Pilate, verse 37, says, so you are a king. Remember, he asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus is answering, I'm not the king of the Jews that they say, that they say I am, a revolting seditionist. And so he says, Pilate says, so are you this other one? If you're not a seditionist, then are you this other promised Messiah that's come to bring peace and unity? And are you that one? You are a king. And Jesus answers clearly. You say correctly that I am a king. For this reason, I've been born. And for this reason, I've come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate says, what what is truth? What's what's even happening here? Your own people that are awaiting the promised Messiah that you say you are, they're rejecting you. What is happening? That's the first scene. Pilate's going to walk back out. End of verse 38. When he said this, he went out again to the Jews and he said, I find no guilt in him. You have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? And they cried out and said, no, give us Barabbas. So verse 1 of chapter 19, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. 
And Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. He's innocent. Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Behold the man. Pilate is saying, You guys are telling me that this is your king? You really want to kill this man? He hasn't done anything. He's innocent. Haven't you had enough? That's what he's saying. Come on, guys. You've had enough. Look, I've, I've beaten him. I've scourged him. Haven't you had enough? Verse 6, they say no. They cried out, crucify, crucify. And Pilate says, I'm done. Take him yourselves, crucify him. I don't find any guilt in him. The Jews answered, we have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. So they brought to Rome, to Pilate. He claims to be king. He should die. He claims to be Caesar. He's going to cause a revolt. Pilate asked Jesus that. Jesus said, nope, that's not what I am. And so he's innocent of those charges. So the Jews say, fine, try him on our charge. Forget claiming to be Caesar. We don't even care about that. He claims to be God. Kill him for that. If you're not going to kill him for your laws, then kill him for our laws or else we are going to start a rebellion against you. Verse 8, therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. I think Pilate already knew there's something special about this guy. And when he hears that he has claimed to be the son of God, he's thinking, I'm dealing with God, very God. He's afraid. He enters into the praetorium again. This is the second trial. This is technically the third because in between the first and the second that John records is the trial with Herod Antipas. John doesn't record that because we have that in the synoptics. So here's the final trial before Pilate. Again, just Jesus and Pilate alone in the praetorium. And he says to Jesus, verse 9, where are you from? Where are you from? Who are you? What is happening here? You're clearly not causing a, a rebellion. They want you dead. Who are you? Where have you come from? Jesus doesn't answer. So, verse 10, Pilate said to him, you don't speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? I I believe what Pilate is saying is, I know you're innocent. Give me something that I can work with to get you out of here. You're not guilty. And I have authority to make this happen. Listen to how Jesus responds. Jesus says, and I just sanctified imagination. Jesus is in shackles, in chains. He has been beaten. He is bloodied. He is bruised. His eyes might be completely swollen shut. Blood is running down his face with a crown of thorns that has been woven together and smashed into his skull. And in this moment, with tenderness and compassion... I I, I like to picture Jesus with shackles around his hand, trying to reach out to grab Pilate's hand. Pilate says, don't you know, I, I have the authority to release you. I have the authority. Give me something to work with. And Jesus reaches out and grabs Pilate's hand and he says to him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. That's a, that's a difficult statement. People tend to think that Jesus is saying, you've been given this from above, meaning from God. And absolutely, God is sovereign in this. 
I actually think the construction of what Jesus is saying is, is clear because of the for this reason. I think what Jesus is just saying is, this isn't your battle. You didn't pick a fight with me. You were just placed here by Rome. That's the from above. You were given this assignment. You didn't come to Israel to try and kill me. I know that you are not wanting to do this. And that's why he says, for this reason, the one who's really guilty. Now, Pilate is going to be guilty of still murdering Jesus. He needs to have a backbone here, and he doesn't. But I think what Jesus is saying is, you're not picking this fight. I know that you want out of this. This isn't about you. This is about somebody else who hates me. But Pilate, you need to know, Caiaphas hates me, and he and all the religious leaders want me dead because it's God's plan. Pilate, don't try and stop this. Do what you need to do because I have come for this reason. I've come for this reason. As a result of what he has said to Pilate, verse 12, Pilate made efforts to release him. With compassion and grace, Jesus says, it's not your fight. You're not picking a fight here. Rome just sent you. Caiaphas is the one who picked this fight. He had the illegal trials. He had the plot in the night. You didn't do any of that. And Jesus says again, or Pilate says again, Jesus is innocent. I want to release you. But the Jews cried out. They finally say, look, if you release this man, you're not a friend of Caesar. And everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Now, the crowd knew Pilate had used up all of his coupons with Rome. Pilate had tried as much as he could to squash rebellions and just kept getting in trouble. He was a man with a lot of trouble in his past. He had a best friend whose name was Sejanus, and Sejanus had been convicted by Caesar of um, causing a rebellion in Rome to try and overthrow Caesar. And Pilate is scared. And because he is afraid, he doesn't want any word getting back to Rome Verse 13, therefore, when Pilate heard these words, or in the words of Luke's gospel, Luke says, when the crowd's words prevailed, Pilate says, okay, fine. He bows out. He's innocent, but I don't want to cause a problem here. So take him, crucify him, kill him. I wash my hands of this man. And it's interesting because you remember what Pilate writes above Jesus? Jesus is going to be killed for making himself out to be king, for causing uh, a revolt, even though Pilate knows he hasn't. But Pilate says, King of the Jews. This is the King of the Jews. I, I just wonder, what did Pilate mean? Do you remember what the religious leaders do? They say, he's not our king. Change it. Take it down. And Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. Leave it there. I wonder if Pilate's wondering about the words that Jesus said. I'm not the kind of king you think I am. Yes, I am a king, but not of this world. I think that these words were ringing in Pilate's ears for years and years to come. So how did Jesus handle himself before Pilate? Two trials. How did Jesus handle himself? Let me just read the, the responses that Jesus gives. John 18, verse 34. Jesus says, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? What, what, let's clarify the question, Pilate. Who's asking and what are you asking? I want to make sure that I don't answer Something that you're asking, but I answer incorrectly. I want to make sure that I answer what you're asking. He clarifies the truth. He's committed to the truth. John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus answers, My kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. 
But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. John 18, 37, when Pilate says, are you a king or you are a king? Jesus answers, you say correctly that I am a king. For this reason, I have been born. And for this reason, I have come into the world to testify the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. In John 19, verse 11, Jesus answers, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above or from another, at least from Rome and maybe even from God. Obviously, we know God was in charge of placing Pilate for such a time as this. For this reason, Jesus says, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Four sayings that Jesus gives before Pilate. Remember, Paul's encouragement to Timothy. Press yourself into the mold of how Jesus handled himself in giving the good confession before Pilate. These four statements are gracious, they're truthful, they're clear, they're compassionate. So let's summarize them in three points. Number one, before Pilate, Jesus was committed to the truth despite all the lies around him. Jesus was committed to the truth despite all of the lies around him. He clarifies questions. As Pilate asks him a question, he doesn't just say, yeah, sure, go ahead, kill me. He wants us to know and everyone around him to know he died as an innocent man. If he had said, yeah, I'm, a ki- I'm the king of the Jews, Pilate would have said, okay, fine, you are a seditionist. Let's kill you as somebody claiming to be Caesar. Jesus can't die as somebody claiming to be Caesar. Jesus dies as somebody claiming to be God. And so he says, whoa, whoa, wait, hang on. What is the question? Let's clarify it. He's committed to the truth, even though there's lies around him. That's why when false witnesses are brought against him, he entrusts himself, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, to God who judges righteously. And when he's asked a question by Pilate in an intimate setting, he answers to get clarification and clearly speak the truth. Number two, Jesus, before Pilate, was committed to the Father's will, even though it would cost him his life. He was committed to the Father's will, even though it would cost him his life. So he's, number one, committed to the truth despite the lies around him. And number two, he's committed to the Father's will. It's for this reason that I've come. Pilate, you're trying to get me off the hook. You've proclaimed my innocence. You're doing everything that you possibly can. But I've come for this reason. I need to die. He's committed to the Father's will, even though he knows it's going to cost him his life. This is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. So Pilate, don't stop. The gears are in motion. This machine is all working towards the end goal of me being on that cross. So don't stop it. He's committed to the Father's will. And finally, number three, he's committed to loving all around him, even though they would be his enemies. He's committed to loving all around him, even though they might be his enemies. Pilate is asking him, don't you know I have authority to deliver you? And in a gracious response, Jesus says, you're not the one who's in this. This isn't your fight. Just hand me over, crucify me. This is what has to happen. But I know it's not your fight. He had a genuine love for Pilate. We also know he had a genuine love even for the ones that he declares are greater involved in sin, who have the greater sin, Caiaphas and the religious leaders. That's why Jesus is going to pray while he's being nailed to the cross. We'll look at this on Friday. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. He loved all around him, even though they might be his enemies. So, Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13 says, Timothy, stare at the way that Jesus handled himself before Pilate. There's a lifetime 
of profound truth in these verses. Stare at that and let that change the way you live. I I would encourage you to go back today, this afternoon or or tonight, and read all of 1 Timothy chapter 6 because you will see exactly these three points. Commitment to the truth despite the lies. Paul tells Timothy, look, there are false teachers. There are people that are preaching false doctrine and heresy around you. You preach the truth. Don't defend yourself. Just preach the truth. Don't, Don't tell people what you're opposed to. Just preach the truth. Timothy, look at the way that Jesus was committed to the truth despite the lies around him. Timothy, you do that. Be committed to the truth, even though there are those spreading false doctrines and saying all kinds of evil against you. Don't defend yourself, Timothy. Just speak the truth. You'll also see in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul saying, Timothy, do what God has given you to do, even though it's going to cost you your life. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, it's cost me mine. I'm going to have my head chopped off because I have preached the gospel. But that's exactly what happened to Jesus. He was killed because of his commitment to doing the Father's will. Timothy, do what your Savior did. Do the will of God. Do the will of the Father, even though it might cost you everything. And finally, number three, Timothy, love, be gracious. Look at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Be gracious to all around you, even the ones that are trying to Use the name of Jesus to to gain money or power or influence. Love them. Yes, they would proclaim themselves to be your enemies, but treat them the way that Jesus treated his own enemies. This is the mold in which Paul says, Timothy, live this way. Stare at Jesus and live the way that he lived. Act the way that he lived or acted. Speak the way that he spoke before Pilate. And let the words that were said only between Jesus and Pilate in the praetorium echo and reverberate in your own ears so that you will act and speak and live the way that your Savior lives. Father, thank you so much for an amazing picture of an intimate conversation between Jesus and Pilate that your Spirit graciously gave us insight to. We want to be like Timothy and be pressed into the mold of the way that Jesus responded before Pilate. We want to act like Jesus. We want to be committed to the truth, even though there's lies, uh, even against us. We, We want to just live out the truth and entrust ourselves to you who would judge righteously. God, we want to be committed to your will, even though it would cost us everything. It cost our Savior his life. And if they hated him, how much more are they going to hate us? Why should we expect to be treated any better than our master? And God, we want to be committed to loving those around us, even those that might be our enemies. May we learn from Jesus and fix our eyes on him now, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who paved the way and established the mold and the path that we are supposed to walk in. May we walk in it even now. We pray in the name of our Savior. Amen. Thank you.